It is a blessing of great magnitude indeed that we have this morning to come together on an occasion such as this one, the marvelous first day of the week set forth in the New Testament by our Savior Himself, as that day to especially offer worship unto our great and majestic God in heaven. As has already been mentioned in our announcements, we have so many things for which we can be thankful. We can continue, though, to think of those who are continuing to be in a state of illness and hope that things will soon improve for them. As we have gathered on the occasion, though, of today, as you can probably see from the subtitle to the lesson, we shall deal with a question that is truly of eternal magnitude, a question of great moment indeed. What must I do to be saved? It may be that all of us from one time or another have had others ask that question of us. In fact, I would certainly submit that for the majority of us here, we have asked that question of ourselves at one point in life, and we have sought diligently to find the answer to that question. Thankfully, this morning, as we open the pages of God's Word, we shall not only consider the question, but perhaps more amazingly, to find the answer. In so doing, I would hope that we would have before ourselves some notes and some ideas that we might use in our daily walk of life to assist ourselves in the instruction and the teaching of others as they too grapple with attempting to find an answer to that question. The plan of salvation, part number one. As you can well tell, there is going to be a part number two that shall come to this lesson, and if it be the will of God, we'll consider that together next Lord's Day morning. But for this morning, let's consider the opening aspect of the plan of salvation. With regards to some introductory material, in fact, the Bible presents in absolute greatness and also true magnificence the fact that human beings, you and I, are those who are guilty of sin. The Bible does not present the case where human beings of our own worthiness and of our own magnitude are able to so live in a fashion to stand justified and sanctified before God. In fact, do we not read by the inspired apostle himself in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? And in fact, the great King Solomon echoed statements similar to that in 1 Kings 8.46. There is no man that sinneth not. We appreciate the fact then that there is this thing called sin and that you and I are guilty of it. When we ask what is the definition of this thing, 1 John 3 verse 4 reminds us, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Thus, we find ourselves violating, transgressing the will of Almighty God of heaven. That very observation paints us in a very dim light in a way, doesn't it? For after all, we learn in this Bible that the, that violation, that transgression has great consequences. In Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1, the great prophet of old, that messianic prophet known as Isaiah, made this comment. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid His face from you that He will not hear. In the same way that under the Mosaic dispensation, sin separated a person from God, it is ever so the case still today. When we transgress God's law, we separate ourselves from Him. His justness, His rightness, His eternal nature as the all-being good one. And in so doing, of course, that means that if we die in that state, separated from Him, we certainly can't be where He is then. That leaves but one option. 
if he is in heaven and the only other option is hell, we must then be in the opposite abode. However, God showed forth to you and I a degree of love that's almost unfathomable. For when he realized and appreciated the fact that we were in this state of being lost, he chose to intervene on my behalf and yours. He chose to do for us and accomplish on our behalf what we could not accomplish ourselves. In John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Rather than being consigned to a devil's hell, there is thus through the greatness and the virtue of the shed blood of the Son of God the opportunity, in fact the marvelous blessing, to be in a place of everlasting life with the Savior himself. As we consider the nature of that salvation, the New Testament, of course, speaks many, many times about how wonderful it is. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In 1 John 2, verse 2, as we consider the nature of sin, mine and yours, it says, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The shed blood of Jesus was sufficiently efficient and efficacious that it could provide the cleansing of capabilities for all sin regardless of nature and regardless of type. To say all that is to say how wonderful God indeed was to you and me. Think about how awful it would have been for God to tell us that we were lost, to tell us that we were violators of His will, to tell us that we were consigned to forever be apart from Him, and yet to tell us nothing we could do to remedy that situation. But yet, in the same way that He informed us that we were sinners, and informed us that we in that state were lost, He also informed us and said, I've loved you enough that I'm going to send my Son for you. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 verse 8. As we see in texts like that one, again, God intervened for us. He allowed to take place what could provide salvation for us, though we did not deserve it, though we in fact were not meriting of it, though it could not be said certainly in any way that we had earned it, for we were His enemies. We were those who had violated His will those who had transgressed His law. As we begin to build a strong case for that question that we issued a moment earlier, we have thus learned the lesson that there is something that man can do such that eternal life shall be his. There is a plan whereby man can subscribe to that and be eternally blessed. It is not necessary for one to remain in that state of being lost. It isn't necessary for one to remain in that state to where that fiery lake of brimstone and fire should be his eternal abode. No wonder, thus, the question may well fall from our lips, what must I do to be saved? That question is asked, in fact, in varying wor wordings in the New Testament. It is found verbatim in one text. In Acts 16, verse 30, there was a jailer in Philippi on one occasion that said that very question, what must I do to be saved? May I submit to you that that is, in terms of personal benefit, the single greatest question that any person can ever ask. What must I do to be saved? For in the very asking of that question, it presupposes the person is aware of the fact 
that he or she is lost. Otherwise, the question would make no sense. And being aware of that fact, the person is also aware that there's something that's able to be done, something to which someone can subscribe, something which can be obeyed to remedy that terrible disease of sin. May I submit in thinking about that, Jesus, in addition to making way, that way of salvation possible, couched it in the very character of his church. He promised in Matthew 16, 18, that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And as we find not many chapters thereafter, that church was established and it did begin. But amazingly, in the later New Testament text, we learn there's one of them. One body, Ephesians 4, verse 4. And not only that, that one body is such that those in it are the ones that are saved. Ephesians 5, verse 23. It thus stands to reason that if a person is not thus a member of that body, having reached that age of accountability, if you will, knowing that there's right and there's wrong, knowing that one has transgressed that law of God, but yet is not a member of that body, then that person's lost. That person does not have the covering nature of the blood of Christ to take care of the sins in his or her life. Thus it would seem that the question that we're asking, what must I do to be saved, goes hand in hand with the matter of what must I do to become a member of the body of Christ. May I submit to you again how great it is that those questions have been answered. Though I alluded to it earlier, would it not be one of the most terrible thoughts to contemplate, to consider that God would have informed us that we're lost, but would have given us no way to remedy that situation? Thankfully, in the New Testament, it is not so. Consider some other thoughts before we look more interestingly at the answer to that question. On this second slide, let's first make a careful note. It was not the intent of heaven that the question that we've asked, namely, what must I do to be saved, would be so sufficiently difficult and so terribly abstract as it was to be hard and difficult to answer. It was the will of heaven that that question ought to be easy to answer. In fact, let's quickly note, it doesn't take a Ph.D. in Aristotelian logic to know what must be done to be saved. It doesn't take a thorough knowledge and conversant capability in knowing Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. We have the blessing of translations before us. One doesn't need to be thoroughly equipped with all the knowledge of what first century life in Palestine was like. Notice, it takes a perusal, a consideration of this holy book in which God provides the answer. In fact, let's take that one step further. Were we to have access to only one New Testament book, really that's all that would be needed. Consider the following. As the 27 New Testament books unfold before us, we know that the first four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, inform us of the blessed life of the Son of God, the fact of His coming in response to the Old Testament prophecies, the fact of His life and all the goodness contained within it, the fact of His teaching and His doctrine and His prophecies, and furthermore, the fact of His very brutal death by crucifixion, and the fact that He was buried and the fact that He was raised, resurrected to life, never to die again. Notice also that they inform us of His ascension all the while. The greatness of those books has set before us the true one that God had intended to come, the Messiah. 
But as they close, we might well ask, in what way do we appropriate the benefits of that life to ourselves? Book number five of the New Testament, the book of Acts. In 28 scintillating, majestic, breathtaking chapters, the Holy Spirit, through the writing of the man named Luke, sets before us the nature of several entities. First, the church came into being as Jesus prophesied, Acts chapter 2. We also learn in that same book the explosive growth of that body. The disciples went everywhere preaching the Word, Acts 8 verse 4. The Word of God prevailed mightily, Acts 19 26. All the while, we learned that explosive growth took that Word everywhere. And there were blessed folks who appreciated and believed and obeyed it. We also notice, though, in this book one other feature, in fact, examples of conversions. Might I pause at this point and ask you to perhaps observe what, what I've often noted. If it is of interest to learn something, isn't it so often wonderful if you can see someone else do it? When that little boy wants to learn how dad makes a piece of furniture, what better way, rather than to have dad sit and talk about and explain, go to the shop and watch dad build it. Help him do it. Or when that young girl wants to help mom knit or crochet or do something in the kitchen, what better way than to help mom do it, to actually be there and observe what she does and how she does it. In the book of Acts, we have ten cases of conversion, ten of them. When you and I thus study those with great interest and intent, we can conclude that if we do today what they did then, we will also experience the same blessings that they experienced. If they became members of the church, when we do the same thing, should not we also become members of that same body? When they found the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Should not we, by observing what they did, find the same answer? It's a lovely thing to behold, isn't it? I would propose to you then we begin a journey through the book of Acts, looking at the cases of conversion and asking very carefully, what did they do in answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? As we begin that journey through this book, I'd ask you to notice with me, that the principle of Psalm 119, verse number 160, will be certainly pertinent, where the great writer of old, the man David, informed us that the sum of thy word is truth. As we look at the various cases of conversion unfolded before our eyes, unfolded before our very reading, let us interestingly consider what they had to do in order to be saved. Let's begin that journey by looking at what I've listed in the form of a table. A chart, if you will. Now, I've tried to list various facts that correspond to the revelation in Scripture. And also, as we shall sh note shortly, we will read down these columns. So we'll look first at instance or case number one. The occasion we notice on this is simply that unfolded in the second chapter of Acts, verses 1 to 47. It was the Pentecost gathering, detailed in great measure for us. Notice that the speaker is given as Peter as well as the other apostles. And the events that took place were before the very hearing of a group of Hebrews gathered on that occasion. Now might it be known that as we look at those interesting facts that have started our discussion, we might well appreciate that those facts are just highlights. In fact, Jesus had been crucified not too many days prior. 
when the Hebrews were gathered on this occasion, it was in response to that Old Testament commandment under the law of Moses that on the Pentecost they were to observe one of the gatherings that had been commanded of them. As they were gathered on that occasion, Peter and the apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, verse number 4, we especially notice that thing is given to us for consideration. However, we quickly learn, beginning in verse 8, that there were some 17 groups or nationalities of people gathered on this occasion. And in verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven and started to preach. He preached in greatness and power about several truths. First of all, that this very one who was here upon earth not many days before was the Son of God. He went about doing good. And in fact, you put him to death. Peter did not, in fact, sidestep the matter. You, who I'm now talking to, were part of those who put the Son of God to death. In fact, he said, though, the bars of death were unable to hold him up from the grave, he arose, and in that way, not only did he arise, he ascended to the Father and now sits as king over the spiritual house of Israel. When Peter reached the close of that sermon in verse 36, he said, Therefore, now let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. At that point, with the sermon being ended, might we now inquire in what way did they respond to what Peter had stated? Well, notice this table continues on to the next slide. Let's look at column number one again. We notice verse 37. Upon ending the sermon, we notice interestingly the following point is made. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. We immediately noticed they heard something. That which Peter had stated and that which had been shared by the very mouth of the inspired man and the other apostles, they heard it. Notice it says they were pricked in their heart. The Hebrew word means they were stabbed, they were pierced, they were cut to the very core of their being with the fact that on their hands was the blood of the Son of God. No wonder they cried out in verse 37, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter, by inspiration, responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repent and be baptized. We notice they had heard. We notice that by the fact they were cut to the heart, that they were of a point of view of having believed in greatness the thought of what Peter had revealed. Notice he told them, You must now repent. Thus, this is something commanded of that group. Notice also that something was joined to repentance, baptism. They were told of the necessity of that latter point as well, repent and be baptized. He did not say or. He did not say repent and if you like to, then be baptized. They were commanded those things in absolute easiness to understand, weren't they? So in looking at the scene of events for this one, we might well remember that of that group, about 3,000 of them did exactly as Peter had commanded. Verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse 47 thus goes on to say, That in character of that church that we had mentioned earlier, we notice the beauty and power of the statement. As they were rejoicing and finding favor with God, the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. That very group thus that had responded in baptism had now become members of the church, and others who did the same 
were also blessed in a similar way. This case then on the day of Pentecost helps us see what these people had to do in order to be saved. Let's look at a second instance. Let's go back a slide. In instance number two, we turn one chapter forward to Acts chapter 3. On that occasion, we now remember that Peter and John had found themselves interested and of a position to go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. That was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. As they went up to that place, there was a lame man who was lying nearby, and he asked an alms of Peter and John. We might remember the interesting statement that these two made to that man who was lame. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Acts 3 verse 6. We notice he did the very thing immediately. The power of God through Jesus' name didn't take days or weeks to heal this man. It was immediate, and the people were amazed. They knew that this man had been lame. They were now overcome with amazement at the thought that he was walking and in fact praising God. That took place, you see, when they began to rush forward into Solomon's porch. On that occasion, with Peter observing this large gathering, he began to preach to them. Beginning in verse number 13 of that chapter, Acts chapter 3, Peter again preached to a group gathered there on Solomon's porch. He preached about the nature of the greatness of the name of Christ and how that they had put him to death and how, however, that God had richly blessed him with resurrection. To say all of that is to say that he does reach a conclusion in verse number 19. If you'd like to reach that conclusion or read the wording of it, Notice what Peter told that group gathered there on Solomon's porch. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Having noted some more specifics, that the spokesman here was Peter, those gathered were Hebrews, the text and the scene took place on Solomon's porch. Let's now ask the same questions as before. What were they told to do? Again, noticing column number two with me, if you would. First, we notice that they heard what Peter taught. They had heard a message relating to the greatness of Christ and what he had accomplished for the human family and the fact that his name is what had made that man whole. Notice, according to one of the verses and the statements made, specifically verses 22 through 26, but I noted for you verse 26, when it says, Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. In light of their willingness to do what Peter had told them, they must have believed what he said. And in the nature of that belief, notice verse 19 commanded them to repent. In regard to their repentance, might we observe that there's a, one more thing stated in verse number 19. Repent ye and be converted. Now, the word baptism is not found per se in that verse. But notice the nature of what it means to be converted. In fact, that matches up identically with Acts 2.38. If you set those verses side by side, repent and be baptized, repent and be converted. What was the benefit of the matter in Acts 2.38? Notice that your sins would be such that they would be remitted and you'd receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice almost exactly an identical wording is found in a way here. It would seem that Peter is listing identical matters from one verse to the other. 
To be converted, it would seem, is a statement of reference to the act of baptism. And that's the reason I listed it for your consideration in Acts 3, verse 19. These thus on Solomon's porch were not able to engage in some far different plan of salvation. It seems to match so beautifully and powerfully with that which was revealed earlier. But let us notice a third instance, a third case of conversion. Again, let's go back to the previous slide. This one in Acts chapter 8. If we turn to the case where the preachers now fill up, we shall be able to ask a very interesting question. Peter was the primary spokesman in the first two examples. Did Philip say the same thing Peter did? Or did he preach a different plan of salvation? Let's notice Acts 8, verses 4 through 12. On this occasion, Stephen had just been stoned, put to death, and there was great oppression that the church was suffering. In verse number 4, we read that they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. In the very next verse, we learn about the labors of a man named Philip. He proceeded onward, we're told, to the region of Samaria and began to preach and began to teach. As Philip arrived at this location and he preached, notice some of the things that he encountered. Let's go back to the other slide. What did he tell these individuals in Samaria to do in order that they might be saved? Let's revisit some of the verses in that chapter. Beginning in verse number 9, we remember that on this occasion there was that man named Simon who had bewitched the people. He engaged in a kind of sorcery, if you will. As that took place, notice, verse 10 says, To him they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Now, verse number 12. But, the word but usually indicates a transition, a change, a reversal, if you will. But when they believed Philip. So notice, Philip had been preaching, and that thought was mentioned in verse number 5. So thus they heard something. They heard the proclamation of what Philip had preached. Notice it says in verse 12, they believed that. We see yet again the reference to the fact that in their heart they came to be convinced of some degree of a truth that Philip had revealed, and they believed it. They had trust in it. They had confidence in it. If you will, they had faith in it. Notice in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Given that the word but is provided to us by inspiration, might we conclude that they turned aside their conviction that Simon was not who he said he was, but they came to appreciate that he was an imposter, if you will. He was not one operating by the power of God. And in so doing, in that sense, by switching their allegiance from Simon to, in fact, none other than what Philip had proclaimed, they repented. Notice then in verse number 12, they were baptized. By this point, we're seeing a marvelous harmony between the occurrences of these cases of conversion. They seem to all have been invited, in fact, commanded to do the same thing. As we look at this scene, again, notice the emphasis in verse number 12. When they believed Philip, they weren't baptized before they believed. It was at the occasion of that belief and thereafter they were baptized. And notice both men and women. 
not only would the different speaker proclaim the same message, it was also given to an audience consisting not merely of men, but also women. Case number four. Let's go back again to our previous screen and look also in chapter 8 at another instance of conversion to be found in this same chapter. Beginning in verse 26 of this chapter and proceeding until its conclusion in verse 40, we see an Ethiopian nobleman, a eunuch if you will, serving as the treasurer beneath Queen Candace of Ethiopia. But amazingly enough, this person had had a mindset and disposition to travel a great distance in order to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, a thousand miles it would appear he traveled one way. In a day long before there was airplanes and trains and cars, he traveled that long distance by chariot. In Acts 8, beginning in verse 26, we notice that this very earnest and devout man had completed his activities and was on the way back homeward. God gave Philip some direction. Go and join thyself to this chariot here on the road to Gaza, in this place called Gaza on the road to, back to Ethiopia. Philip proceeded to do so at once. He came to the place, the chariot came by, Philip joined himself to it, and a conversation ensued. Notice that as I list some of the things about the details, we've already listed the facts there. Let's now proceed on with the rest of that story. What did Philip tell this eunuch to do? First of all, we might remember how wonderfully the conversation began. Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And I'm paraphrasing, of course. But the eunuch quickly responded, how can I accept some man guide me? Philip joined himself then or got up into the chariot, and as they rode along, this eunuch was reading from what we'd call the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And he asked, of whom is the prophet speaking? Of himself or some other man? Verse 35 tells us, Philip at that point began to preach to him Jesus. As Philip thus shared with him the good news of the gospel, the nature of all the good things contained within it, we notice in verse number 36 that something dramatic happened. It says, And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, might we remember, here was Philip speaking about Jesus, preaching the good news of all that was involved in the doctrine of Christ. As they came to a place where there was water nearby, and the eunuch knew that, he said, Hold it. Here's water. Why can't I be baptized? Here was a man who knew exactly what needed to be done. In fact, he didn't wait, if you will, for the invitation to be extended. He interrupted the preacher, if you will, in mid-sermon. And in so doing, may we again notice the things I've listed for your consideration. In this fourth case, it's clear that this man heard what Philip had to say. In fact, he invited Philip to join him in the chariot. Did he believe what Philip had to say to him? I list for your consideration Acts 8 verse 37. This is what Philip said in response to his affirmation. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Notice he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He believed. What about the nature of repentance? We might notice there's no special reference to repentance in this case of conversion. But notice as we notice what's next in verse 37 and 38, he confessed and then he was baptized. In these first four instances, 
we have come to appreciate that there seems to be great harmony between all four cases of conversion. In the first four, we've noticed different speakers, both men and women. In this instance, we see even a foreigner, if you will. This person was not a, an Israelite. He was from Ethiopia. So the same message was also for different nationalities. Might we, perhaps in closing, pay some note to verse 39. He went on his way rejoicing. When did the eunuch rejoice? Was it prior to or subsequent to his baptism? It was after. And we will certainly come to understand why later in the lesson. That's when his sins had been forgiven. He no longer was living in that nature of sin. Let's look at our fifth case of conversion and the last one for the lesson this morning. Turning back to our previous screen, we now go forward to the 16th chapter of Acts. There is more than one case of conversion in that chapter, but let us look at verses 12 to 15 first. And note that interesting set of events surrounding the lady that we know of as Lydia. In Acts 16, beginning in verse number 12, we remember this was in the very nature of the second missionary journey. Paul and his companions were in the readiness of having received the Macedonian call, come over and help us. We notice they at once began with earnestness to proceed toward Macedonia. The first place, the first major place they visited in Macedonia was Philippi, that city that we shall see through the rest of this chapter form the heart of what took place there. In verse number 12, we notice that there was a Roman colony in that place. And verse 13 says, And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come unto my house and abide there. And she constrained us. We notice that there was another conversion here that took place, and let's list some of the features of it as well. Taken from this text in Acts, the 16th chapter, as we read a moment ago from verses 13 and 14, she heard what Paul had preached. Thus she became aware of the truth and the elements contained in the ministration of the gospel. Notice in verses 14 and 15, we have direction that the Lord had opened her heart, indicating a degree of belief, an overwhelming confidence in the truth of what Paul had revealed by inspiration. And inasmuch as the Lord had opened her heart, notice what could be said concerning verse number 14. She attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul, indicating not only that she had believed, but in the fact that she attended to them, she must have repented. For why would one proceed if one had not repented to do that which Paul had proclaimed? As we rapidly come to verse 15, we note she was baptized we see yet again a powerful recognition of a marvelous unity about the plan of salvation. In fact, I've listed in Acts 16, 15, the observation of her baptism. As we pause at this point and draw some conclusions about the first five of our cases of conversion, might we be fairly able to note the following? What must one do to be saved? Truly a dramatic question. 
And so far as we are able to tell from these five instances, the answer does not depend on who the preacher was. The answer does not depend on whether it was male or female. The answer does not depend on where the country was the person was from. Everybody was subject to the same plan of salvation. And to that we should say a hearty amen. God is no respecter of persons, Acts 10, 34 and 35. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. In Romans 2, 11, yet again, Paul affirmed, God is no respecter of persons. In terms of the conclusions we might reach, they each heard the gospel. They heard the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They heard the reality of the gospel ministration. However, hearing it was not enough. They believed it. That is, they came to have confidence in the truth, the correctness, if you will, of what they had been taught and what they had been told. In addition to belief, we noticed that they had repented of their sins. In the instances of which we noted, with only one exception so far, that was clearly and very easily able to be understood. In addition, we noticed in particular the eunuch confessed. And as much as that confession was made, it was prior to his baptism. And finally, we notice that they were each baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. I've listed some other passages to consider in light of those ideas. To notice that not only in Acts, but we see them verified time and again. Jesus had said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16.16. 16. We notice in other places, for instance, Saul was told, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We read in 1 Peter 3, 21, Baptism doth also now save us. It might be easily able to see that there's one other interesting observation. In terms of the elements of what we have studied today, these matters of hearing and believing and repenting and confessing and being baptized, by far, the one throughout the ages that has led to the greatest questioning on the part of man is, is baptism essential for salvation? I would quickly point out it has been present in all five cases so far, without exception. And even though it's a prelude by seven days till the next lesson, it will also be mentioned in all five of the other cases as well. It would seem that it would be far more able to question the others than baptism. In all ten instances, baptism is mentioned. As we draw the conclusion to the lesson today, now we close it by noting some of those latter verses that I've listed. Notice that even Jesus affirmed for us an act of baptism as he made reference to it. And what was it Paul affirmed in Romans 6 when he made reference to the same? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Notice that's where we in fact contact the greatness of his death the blood he shed on that occasion. For the next verse, he said, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. These facts thus lead us to that dramatic conclusion that we've just now listed. Friend, have you attended to these things in your life? Have you obeyed the gospel plan of salvation? If you have, you know how wonderful it felt on the day of your baptism to come out of that watery grave able to rejoice just as the eunuch did. But if you haven't attended to that yet, realize that there will never be another plan. The one and only plan has been revealed. 
if you and I fail to subscribe to it, whose fault is that? Is it God's? Is it Christ's? It's not their fault. It's my fault. If you need to be baptized today, realize that you need to hear His Word, believe it to be true. You need to repent of your sins, confess His wonderful name as your Lord and Master. And on this Wednesday, past Wednesday evening, we had the privilege of witnessing that. We would love to witness that again if there's one or more here in need of becoming a Christian today. If we could do that, we'd be happy to aid your baptism. The baptismal waters behind me are warm. The towels and the men and women are ready to assist you as the case may be. It would only take a few moments. If we could assist you in doing it today, will you not let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?